it's been a long time since I've read uh, in-depth literature, but I remember uh, having to read Henry James, who is an American writer from the 19th century. And there was a book, I think it was in the uh, Wings of the Dove, where a woman complains about a preacher at church who always went on about the temperature of hell and the furniture of heaven. I think what she meant by that is he was either going fire and brimstone about avoid all the bad things, or he's painting some flowery pictures of heaven. This seemed pretty boring and unexciting and uninspiring. I think that's one of the reasons why many times preachers have a difficult time preaching from the last chapters of the book of Revelation, because as we heard this week and then we heard last week, we see this big picture of heaven. We see what the new Jerusalem is like and all the things that it tells us it's meant to be. And we are tempted as preachers to kind of shrug that off and say, well, I don't want people to think we're all floating around on clouds playing harps, so maybe I'll preach on something else. Well, I thought, you know what, I'm up for a challenge, because I think that today it's really important that we hold on to this vision that God gives of us of the new Jerusalem, because in many ways it challenges us to think about things differently. It's not about flying away into some heavenly realm where we play harps, but instead it's a profound vision that God gives us of the transformation of this world and the transformation in particular of the things that are deeply imperfect about this world and deeply imperfect about us. So as I begin, I'd like to speak to you about that and to talk to you a little bit about why this vision that John receives is so important. If you were with us last week, you remember that uh, I talked about how the book of Revelation is its the last book of the Bible, but it's also probably the last book of the Bible to be written down. It's hard for us to know because unfortunately none of the writers put down uh, the date when they wrote things down, so you're kind of guessing a little bit based on what it is that they're referring to. The book of Revelation, most scholars agree today, probably it was written either in the end of the first century, so maybe 90 AD or so, all the way up to the middle of the second century, so maybe 150 AD or something like that. And it was written, uh, we're told, to a person named John, by a person named John, and we don't know who that is exactly, but this person received a vision. So God shows them something, and we're not entirely sure how that works, whether it's a dream or what it is, but he writes down basically everything that the angels show him about God and about what will happen in the world. And the last chapters of Revelation are about how things come to an end, this great drama of humanity and its fallenness and its restoration. We hold on to these last chapters of Revelation because I think it's holding up to us a real vision of hope. That when times are really difficult, and it was very difficult in the times that it was written because the Roman Empire persecuted the church, but nevertheless it says, don't be despairing because God will take care of things and God has the power to make right what is wrong. So what was wrong then? What is it that he's talking about that's so inspiring about the vision of a city? I mean, after all, so what? Jerusalem comes down, what has that got to do with me? It's really worthwhile to look a little bit, as we often do, at passages just before what we read, because it helps illuminate what it is that's so important about what we read. One of the most important things to see about this passage is to see the big contrast between what Jerusalem was like when this was written and the vision that God gives of what Jerusalem will be. Jerusalem, at the time this was written, unfortunately, was a, a steaming ruin. Some of you who are historians will know that about 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, the Jewish people rose up in revolt against the Roman Empire. In the Gospels, we find often Jesus runs up against Roman soldiers or Jewish people are complaining about Roman taxes because Rome, uh, a few decades before Jesus was born, took over Israel. And the Israelites never liked it very much. They always wanted to be free, and so in the 60s, about 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, they rose up in a revolt against Rome. 
They kicked the Romans out of Israel and Palestine and wanted to establish their own kingdom, but unfortunately, that lasted very shortly. The Romans, in great anger that they had been kicked out, came with their legions, and the emperor Vespasian sent his son Titus to make sure he did the job really well, and he did. He led the legions around Jerusalem. They encamped around Jerusalem, pierced through the gates, and by the fall of A.D. 70, it completely destroyed Jerusalem. They broke down the gates so that they could no longer be fortified. They crushed the temple and they took the temple stones and took the Jewish slaves they captured and made them gather and pull those stones all the way to the ocean and throw them in so the temple could never be rebuilt. And it still hasn't. From that day forward, the Jewish people were sent to the four corners of the Roman Empire. That's why uh, until 1949, when Israel was established as a state, the Jewish people could be found throughout Europe and were often unfortunately persecuted in all that time. Why? Because they were there, settled by the Romans into different parts of the empire. They were forced to live separately so that they weren't assimilated by the Gentiles. The Gentiles came and took all the treasures out of Israel. And if you go today to Rome, you can be really treated. If you go to the Forum in Rome, you'll see all those great temples and things of ancient Rome. But one thing you can see that's really important about biblical history is Titus, who was the victorious general, to celebrate his victory, erected what's known as the Arch of Titus. And you can go there in the Roman Forum today and see all the pictures of Titus's armies crushing Jerusalem. And a picture is very striking where the Roman soldiers are dragging in the menorah, which is the uh, candle that has eight different, or candelabra with eight different candles, and dragging it out of the temple. And so all of these treasures robbed from Jerusalem and brought into Rome. Jewish people scattered. The Christian church, uh, which had been primarily up until that point Jewish, scattered and assimilated into the Gentiles. And here we find that all the hopes that Jerusalem had have been crushed. This city that God loves has been judged and broken. The temple is gone. And in fact, Jerusalem, even in its moral character, had undergone decay because when God's son came in peace, it killed God's own son. Here's this ruin and this brokenness. And then what do we see? We see John being given a vision that this is not a city that will come to an end, but instead a city that through God's power and God's might is renewed and in fact perfected. Listen to some of the words that happened just before what we heard read. And Gene's probably glad we didn't read just before because this is a mouthful. Here's some of the things that we hear about this city. It has the glory of God and a radiance like a very rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It has a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates 12 angels and on the gates inscribed the names of the 12 tribes of the Israelites. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. The west, three gates. And the wall of the city has 12 foundations, and on them are the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The city lies four square. Its length, the same as its width. He measured the city with its rod, 1,500 miles. Length and width and height, they're equal. He measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which the angel was using. The wall is built of jasper, the city's pure gold, clear as glass, the foundations of the wall of the city adorned with every jewel. And then I saw no temple in the city, or and then the twelve gates are twelve pearls. Each of the gates is a single pearl, and the street of the city is pure gold, transparent as glass. Remember what I just told you about what Jerusalem looked like? People are scattered, foreigners have taken all the glory out of the city, the walls lay in ruin, the gates are broken and lay open, and the temple has been destroyed. And what does John see? He sees every one of those things reversed. Think about all the 12 tribes that are scattered around the world, and what do we find? 
each of the gates is named after one of the tribes. It symbolizes that the tribes have come home and reunited. And you look, too, about how Jewish Christians and, and Jewish people who uh, didn't recognize Christ are reunited. Why? Because in the gates are the names of the tribes of Israel, the foundations of the wall of the twelve apostles of Jesus. Christians and Jews united and no longer at each other's throats. What do we find here? We find a little bit later, it says, um, it states, its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. Why do the gates lie open? Not because they're crushed, but because there is peace all around and no longer fighting around Jerusalem. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth bring their glory into it. The kings that just took the glory out of Israel will now bring their glory into Israel. Reversed. No temple. The temple has been lying in ruins. Why do you no, no longer need a temple? Because God himself will replace the temple. The whole reason for the temple's existence is taken away because God himself will be there. And what does the city look like? What is it made out of? It's not made out of things that make sense militarily. I mean, think about, for example, if you were at the Citadel in Quebec, a wonderful example of a great citadel with military uh, uh, objectives in mind. Believe me, when you go there, you're not going to see jewels and, and gates made out of pearls because those are ridiculous materials to use if you're trying to uh, protect yourself from a military conquest. Why do you use these things? Why do you bling out a building? You bling it out because its goal is not defense, its goal is beauty. What we see here is a picture of everything that was wrong with Jerusalem completely reversed, and we hear from the very beginning this is reversed not by human cunning, not by the sweat of human brow, but by God's power alone. And that's why this vision is so important for us. It's not to think, oh, wouldn't it be nice if the streets are of gold? Uh, maybe I should practice up on the harp before I get to heaven. No, what it's meant to do is to make us think, what does this symbolize? It's meant to symbolize the true reversal of all that is wrong in the world and a return of peace that human beings have not been able to achieve. We look at this and we think, yes, when we despair of the world, there's hope. I can't make Syria suddenly no peace. But I do believe that God will. I look at the world and I think not all poverty can be eliminated by the power of my own might, but God will. But even those things are, I think, a little too abstract. There's always troubles and wars and rumors of wars. You know what's so encouraging, I think, about this and what we can take home today? Is that we look at, yes, the temple in Jerusalem and see it broken and God restoring it. You know what I often feel despair over? So when I look at the temple of my own body and my own life, and I despair at its brokenness. You know, of course, we can look at many different ways we wish our lives were different. Finding our own imperfections is not hard to do. But I think what's particularly damaging is not where we make a little mistake here and there. What's damaging is when we have seen something, we've been encouraged to change it, and we try to change it, and it fails. And if you're like me, so often the things you know are dragging you down and causing you misery and keeping you from obtaining the full potential God gives us are in fact the things that again and again and again and again and again you try to break and you can't do it. And what do you want to do after you've failed? Give up. You know, for me, one of the big challenges I've had for much of my life is just, in a physical sense, how I treat my own body. Do I eat right? Do I exercise? You know very well what I'm talking about. When you're in your 20s, of course, you can eat chili cheese dogs and then, uh, you know, drink a little too much and you wake up in the morning fresh as a daisy and go out jogging or something. Spoiler alert, it doesn't work in your 40s, right? <laughs> One of the challenges, of course, though, is, is that obviously God, you know, there's no sort of uh, fitness test to get into heaven. God's not going to weigh you. He's not going to check your heartbeat. But what God does is that he loves the idea of his children being free. 
And he looks with sorrow about the ways that his children are enslaved. And sometimes for, for many of us, for myself particularly, you know, physical health has been one of the ways that I've felt a sense of slavery. We all know how crummy you feel when you don't eat right. And you think, why did I do that? And so I'm going to do better next time. Maybe you have the experience of every New Year's thinking, this year I'm going to buy the gym membership and I'm actually going to use it three weeks from now and not just stop by the time February hits us. Unfortunately, that has not been my experience. So oftentimes you buy that membership and it just doesn't happen, so you cancel it after a while. And I find myself as well, it's like, what do you do? When you've uh, fallen down a few times, you think, oh, forget it. And you go, uh, and of course, Costco doesn't help. You don't just buy, I'm a little hungry and I want a little bag of cheesies. It's the mega giant bag. And you find yourself going through them so much that you end up thinking, just forget it. There's no hope here. And that's a small thing, of course, but it also affects your self-esteem and your general health. How many of us have the same experience when it comes to, I'm going to stop yelling at my kids, or I'm going to stop grumbling about my spouse, or I'm going to stop lazing around at work, or the struggle I have with alcohol, or whatever the case may be. All of us have different ways where it's not just somebody shaming us, it's us looking at a part of our life and thinking, this just isn't right, it's not making me happy, it's not making me grow, it's instead something that is keeping me dragged down again and again. And we look at that and think, I'm tired of failing, so I'm just going to give up. Take a look at Jerusalem and ask yourself how often Jerusalem failed. Not only did it kill prophets and stone those that God sent to it, it killed Jesus, God's own son. That's a pretty big mistake, don't you think? And of course, Jerusalem, as Jesus warns them and says, look, you live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. Do not do this. And yet they rise up and they find this entire city crushed by the Roman Empire, scattered. Here's a city that has a long list of reasons to be embarrassed, to be ashamed, and to give up. And yet what does God give to people who are mourning Jerusalem's brokenness and failure? He gives a vision of God perfecting Jerusalem and making it right, even though Jerusalem got everything wrong. I look at that and I think about my own life and the way that I fall and I look at people I love and the way that they fall. And I think that that's a statement to us about what we should do at times where that failure haunts us and the shame haunts us and the fear of failure haunts us. This continually to keep bringing it before God and say, here's my shame, here I'm embarrassed, here's the ways that I have lots of doubts. But reassure me that that is not going to stop you from making me the person you want me to be. You think about what the cross is all about is not that God saw the world was getting it pretty much together and needed a little bit of a boost. It is people getting it massively wrong and God saying, I see how wrong it is and I do not want you to bear the consequences. I will bear them myself. That is what God is offering to us when we find the consequences weighing down in our souls. He asks us freely to keep bringing this back to the Lord to say, I am far from perfect. I am deeply flawed. I'm losing courage. Here it is. I take my failures and give it to you. Let me try again. You know, one of the most inspiring things, and I, I, I know I, I go on about this a lot, but one of the most inspiring things I see are people who go through 12-step programs, and whatever it is, it's alcohol or eating or whatever it is, whatever the fact is, is that what's most inspiring about those is the realization that when you realize you've got that problem, and you can't solve it yourself, there is somebody above you who loves you and has the power to take this. And yes, there are scars you may bear, but there is somebody who will walk with you who has scars himself because he was scarred with hands uh, that have been nailed through. That's what we have, and that is the vision we have. When you look in the mirror and you berate yourself, remember that Christ died for this person you see in the mirror. And remember that if God can look at Jerusalem, who failed so miserably, and say, I want to renew you and make you perfect, he can do the same with you. 
Don't despair at your weakness. Instead, take joy at God's strength and his desire to do good for you. And that, I think, is what that vision gives to us. But here's the second thing. I think there's always grace, but there's also always challenge in the gospel. Here's, I think, one of the great challenges we have. We talked, or I talked to you about how the nations bring back the glory, how it is that these foreign nations that had destroyed Jerusalem are now brought in uh, the glory into Jerusalem. What's interesting is the imagery here is not of a conquest. Like you've gone and raided the nations and taken all their stuff and brought it in. What you see is, in fact, the kings of the nations bringing freely their glory into Jerusalem. And they have genuine glory. They're bringing this in, but here's what's also really interesting. On either side of the river, that's verse 2 of chapter 22, is the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit each month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nation. Not you nations that destroyed Jerusalem will be destroyed, but you nations who destroyed Jerusalem will be healed by the power of God's tree of life, by his fresh life-giving water. That's such a wonderful picture of reconciliation with those who are bitter, deep enemies. One of the greatest tragedies, and I think really it's the heart of all tragedy that we see on earth, is the way that wounds can't be healed and reconciliation can't seem to happen between people. I mentioned some of the greatest disasters, and also even if you look at Jerusalem today, that's one of the greatest sorrows in the world is how the Palestinians and the Jews cannot seem to get along. And how it is that every few years we hear about a new round of missiles fired, of atrocities occurring, of disputes, and it seems like an intractable problem there. And I look and think even the best minds, people who've won Nobel Peace Prizes, have not been able to bring these two together. We look at this passage in which the nations are reconciled with the Jewish people and there's hope because God can do what we can't. But even stronger, though, is the challenge to us to say, well, okay, I can't solve Israel and Palestine's problems. Maybe what I can do is reconcile with a small group of people that God brushes me up against day by day. It's very easy to say, oh God, I want so much to have something happen out there. It's so much harder to say, God, humble my heart and help me to see the good in people that I have a hard time with. Do you notice the nations didn't just have rubbish, they had actual glory that God was doing something in the nations, even though that might have been hidden to the Jewish people. They took what was good about the nations and came to enrich God's kingdom. Look carefully for what's good in the people you have a hard time with. Yes, they may seem like a jerk to you, but are they 100% jerk? Well, in my experience, oftentimes it makes me feel angry when somebody has not treated me well and it makes me ignore the fact that there's lots of things that may be right. Maybe they weren't particularly nice to me, but maybe they're a great father. Maybe they're a person who really improves their neighborhood because they volunteer or they're very generous with important causes. Strikes me as I look at this as to say, here's a challenge for us. If God can reconcile Jews and Palestinians in the final era, this intractable problem, could he not reconcile me with the guy I kind of think is a bit of a jerk? And am I really willing to let God do what he has to do in me and in that person to make that reconciliation occur? Think about that circle of people in your life, the neighbor who maybe plays music a little bit too much, the person at work who gets on your nerves, the person who, for whatever reason, you find it hard to love. Let this be a challenge to you to say, I know that I can't see right now what the perfection of the world looks like, but couldn't you perfect the little relationships I have around me today, Lord? And Let me be what you want me to be so that that, that reconciliation can occur. A challenge is to say, God, I know I can't build a Jerusalem. You will. But Lord, I want to be one of the building blocks. And I want you to use me and start building your kingdom where I am. 
He can do that. He can do amazing things if only we let him.